Welcome to Lost or Found with Dr. Michelle Choi, the podcast where we think about what can be possible in our lives. The contents of this podcast and website are for informational purposes only and are not a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, and or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you have regarding a medical condition and before undertaking any diet, dietary supplement, exercise, or other health program. And now, here's your host, Dr. Michelle Choi. Thank you for joining the podcast today. It's going to be an interesting show as we bring up the topic of addiction. In the field of medicine, you have a small window into someone else's life. In the hospital, there's more of an urgency to the need that needs to be addressed, and the encounter will be more focused to save that person's life. In primary care, your patient is at least stable, may not necessarily be healthier, but because a person is out and about in life, you can get a better idea of what that person is like in their daily lives. And in front of the doctor and behind closed doors, I felt that people were slightly more honest. I was shocked to see that the actual truth is that so many of us, meaning the majority of us, feel badly. Some people act badly because they feel badly. Some people self-medicate with alcohol and drugs because they feel badly. Some feel stuck in their lives because they feel badly and some can't sleep because they feel badly. It's also the rarity when someone is honest with their level of substance abuse. And sometimes it's so bad that the person can't hide it anymore. But it's so much more common than you think. And addiction is something that all of us can fall prey to if we're not careful. It existed before the pandemic, but it's even more apparent now as we emerge from the pandemic. COVID-19 is associated with both negative health and economic impacts, as well as grief, loss, and prolonged stress and uncertainty. For example, a person may not have been a big drinker prior to the pandemic, and feeling depressed and anxious during the pandemic, the drinking became nightly, then began at 5 p.m., then the drinking was pushed up to start even earlier, drinking a Bloody Mary at 10 a.m., with having hangovers and blackouts. And while it's rare that alcohol causes cirrhosis, which basically means a dead liver, alcohol, which is so readily available in our society, affects your health in many ways. According to the Harvard Health blog, Women, Alcohol, and COVID-19 by Don Sugarman and Shelley Greenfield, Physical health is adversely impacted by heavy drinking, including risks for hypertension, cancer, stroke, liver disease, and alcohol-impaired accidents. Because women absorb and metabolize alcohol differently than men, they are more susceptible to the negative physical consequences of alcohol, including liver disease, heart disease, and cognitive impairment. It is estimated that one-third of breast cancer cases could be prevented if women did not drink alcohol. And they also continue to point out, alcohol use can negatively affect mental health. Women have twice the risk of men for depression and anxiety, and heavy alcohol use exacerbates depression, anxiety, and insomnia, 
symptoms experienced by many people during this pandemic. It should also be noted that in December 2020, during the pandemic, the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the CDC, issued an advisory that overdose deaths had reached an all-time high, citing increasing opioid-related deaths. And the reason that we may not have heard about how bad the overdose deaths have become is because it's been overshadowed by the number of people who have died from COVID-19. Today, I'm excited to have Jane Dawson on the show today as we talk about addiction. She has been in private practice as a licensed marriage and family therapist with a specialty working with individuals, families, couples, and groups focused on helping people with addictions and relapse prevention. Hello, Jane Dawson. Thank you so much for being here, and welcome to Lost or Found. Thank you so much. It's wonderful to be here with you as well. Thank you. And before we begin, can you tell us about yourself? Well, um, I have been counseling in Santa Cruz County for, I don't want to say how many years. I'm many, many years. I got my (laughs) license in 1979. Prior to that, I worked for nonprofits. And um, I got my hours there. I have a specialty in chemical dependency treatment, and I've seen probably close to a thousand people in my private practice, individuals, families concerned about a significant other who has an addiction, and also couples where alcohol or drug abuse is a problem. And I've also... um, uh, For 20 years, I taught in, I coordinated programs for University of California Extension, and I also was on the adjunct faculty at the University of San Francisco for eight years, teaching classes in, training counselors how to work with alcoholics and addicts. Wonderful. And as we begin and as we discuss um, addiction today, can I ask you, drug abuse is so hidden. How bad is our drug problem? I would say it's pervasive. In other words, since I started working in the field in the 70s, it's it's gotten worse. I mean, not only here in this country, but also in other countries. It's kind of a negative side effect of globalization, as I see it, mm-hmm. and of the of the style of of the lifestyle that accompanies that for so many people, where they're asked to do more than is humanly possible. That's kind of an interesting perspective. What do you mean, what what aspects to globalizations? Are we, like, working too much, or...? Yes, it's, it's not just working, but just the expectation that we can have it all, that, mm-hmm. that quote, you know, meaning that we can have an interesting uh, job and, and a, a career is very different than a job. You know, a career involves, it's like you don't have any um, set hours. You you don't just get paid by a wage. You, you dedicate yourself to a field and you do what you um, are motivated to do and what you have time to do. But obviously there's always more to do than, than we can do at any one time. Then we're expected to have children and to have a successful marriage, to be a, uh, 
a, a contented spouse and for the marriage to flourish and for the children to flourish. And, and um, when people find themselves just overwhelmed and, and or things are happening that, that are disturbing and troubling to them, you know, the children are having problems or the marriage isn't going well, they... Um, or, I mean, even even if they just are overworking, they it's very tempting to turn to something that seems enticing and seems like a solution to help you have more energy and to get things done, you know, to keep yourself going longer, which, for instance, you know, if you look at, at uh, drugs, they're basically divided into four categories, stimulants, you know, which people use to activate themselves and to energize themselves to work harder. Particularly, you know, methamphetamine is a is a drug that's often used by the working class, by people who work very hard as laborers. Um, and um, I've seen heroin used um, or synthetic opiates such as OxyContin or other medically prescribed drugs that should be used for pain. People get into pain, though, when they overwork. So um, people develop an addiction very quickly to, to those drugs, meaning that they they say, wow, I can do so much more now that I'm taking my heroin. I can study 12 hours a day if I'm a UCSC student, or in case I had a woman like that. And um, it's just so seductive. You know, and then if people are usually they're they're overwrought and it takes a long time to settle down to be able to go to sleep and it's very tempting to be able to, to use alcohol wine is a great relaxer that can you know in four hours you can come down off your work day and sleep well um, however one thing drugs have in common is they all tend to produce tolerance and what that means is that it takes more and more to get the effect you used to get with less. Definitely. And I can see how with our lives, you know, feeling so busy and out of balance that, you know, when it, when it is out of balance, you really can't focus on what needs attention or what is true. Right. Yeah. You're just so busy running to keep up. Exactly. And always feeling like you're behind the eight ball. And sometimes I wonder if with addiction, you know, or taking substances that... It's like a quick way in which to mask any suffering, any emotional pain, any discomfort that we're feeling. Mm -hmm. Yes. In the beginning, that's true. Later on, it becomes a problem in and of itself. And, and then that's another hurdle that um, people often don't know how to deal with. Yeah. And perhaps another issue is that sometimes in terms of our own pain and suffering or our feeling imbalanced... These are things that we don't talk about. Yes, that's true. There, our culture does not model how to be a balanced human being. We used to have bound, more boundaries than, than we do now. When I was a child, for instance, um, most stores were closed on Sundays. And, and in the evening also. There, and everyone, I mean, there was a movement in the 19th century in this country to try to get an eight-hour workday for the average worker. For, and um, for many years, you know, that was the difference between work work um, 
management and and working people was that management uh, worked more hours. They got a salary and they were expected to do what it took to get the job done. Um, but I think that um, that that has all broken down, and it's really unfortunate because it it helped. It helped people need boundaries. We're not able to just set our own boundaries and function very well, most of us, without some accountability to people outside and structure from the culture. I agree. I mean, with the convenience of everything, and it's convenient that stores are open on Saturdays and Sundays, Mm -hmm. but with the convenience, I think there comes other problems where it's almost as if we can't turn it off. That's right. That's really the really a problem for a lot of people is can't we can't turn it off and it's very scary to feel out of control in that way with anything. Yeah, where do you think um, drugs and alcohol lead people? Well, it, it, you well there are people who take drugs and alcohol and don't become addicts or alcoholics. Mm-hmm. There there are people who sort of. I think they intuitively know that if they don't maintain a certain predetermined amount that they allow themselves to drink, that they it could become a problem. And so they'll set a limit of, of two drinks on any drinking occasion and, and, and stick to that. And mostly they don't develop problems. Um, there are some people who become alcoholics from the first time they take a drink. And usually those people are predisposed genetically and they they um, seem to need the alcohol for different reason. Like someone who has a social phobia would be very tempted to use alcohol as a social lubricant, for instance. Do you think it's actually possible to maintain those boundaries? Like a person who only drinks two drinks a week I guess my concern would be, isn't there sort of a dependence? There's a dependence that develops when people are using the drug for a specific Mm -hmm. purpose. And usually people are. Sometimes, you know, that purpose is to help them socialize. And actually a half a drink may make them more um, extroverted and outgoing, but two drinks might impair their ability to converse with someone so they would keep their intake within that frame. Then, of course, there are people who, who you know, it's just they can't set their own boundaries. They, they lose track or they have a crisis in their life. And what was formerly, a, you know, a moderate use of, of drugs or just taking the drugs because the doctor had prescribed them for pain becomes using the drug to function, to mm-hmm. increase functioning. Do you feel like there are some certain substances where it's harder to maintain that boundaries, like just doing a little bit? Mm-hmm. I think opiates are very slippery slope. People usually, when they speed, you know, it has its own bad effects. If you take t- if you take it every day for too many days, you start to get paranoid and um, and you start to have um, you know people notice that. You, something strange is going, you aren't your usual usual self. So they, um, it interferes in that way with, with their ability to um, connect with people. And, and it's embarrassing. So people will usually use it short term. Um, However, you mean it's embarrassing when they're 
when they're not their real self? And what do you mean? Well, you know, if if someone is is really hyper all the time mm-hmm. and you've known them as a mellow person, and then they continue to like be hyper and then and they and they become less functional in some ways than than they used to be, then you you might say, hey, what's wrong? Um, you know, I'm here. You want to talk or uh, it, it's, you know, pe- people notice it. It's very yeah. obvious. Whereas with opiates, you can use them for a long time and no one knows. Nothing on the outside is revealed that uh, indicates that you're using them to to keep yourself going longer than you would be able to without yeah. them. It's interesting that you mention opioids as being this slippery slope because I was looking at some of like the... Um, the addiction data and CDC states that there were nearly 71,000 um, drug overdose deaths in the U.S. in 2019. Over 70% were involved with opioids. I mean, the number is huge and it's a huge percentage. Mm-hmm. Well, people can die from alcohol poisoning, but usually that only happens to young people who are kind of naive, who who have like like who drink a very large amount of alcohol all at once and then they aspirate and then on their vomit that that that's one way mm-hmm. they could go or the, it could actually put the part of the brain that controls the heart to, and lungs to sleep and they would they would die but that doesn't happen too often compared to people the seductive thing about opiates is that even if you're taking them for pain, you can reach a point where they're no longer effective because you have such a high tolerance mm-hmm. that the 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 line between taking enough to stop the pain and and actually taking enough to kill yourself is too thin. Interesting. So, so a lot of a lot of um, deaths from opiate overdose. Are accidental. People did, weren't intending to kill themselves. It just happened because they got to that line and went over it. Yeah. It's kind of, I mean, it's like addiction overall. I don't think anyone intends to become an addict. It's just that when you're playing along that line or on those train tracks, mm-hmm. it happens. Right. Now, marijuana is a drug that people can consume large amounts of, and it doesn't seem to have any short-term effects. Perhaps um, it might have some effect on memory. It might have um, some effect on motivation, meaning that it would be harder to get going or mm-hmm. or to work as long. But people usually take large amounts of marijuana f- because they want to numb emotionally and not feel and then if it's affecting your memory or even your motivation, doesn't that become a chronic effect of the drug? It does, although for some people they just set up a lifestyle where those are not factors that um, uh, interfere in any way. Mm-hmm. And some people are able to maintain you know, a facade of, of being able to be competent in, in ways they need to be and still smoke a lot of marijuana. Yeah, it's kind of like acclimating to who you're becoming instead of who you want to be. That's very well said. Yeah. How would you answer this if I asked it to you this way? In regards to a casual user versus an abuser, do you think a user is already an addict? No, I don't. And I think that's one of the 
problems where people get into trouble is that they people have images of what's problem use and what is just use and they in marriages for instance you see this i see have seen this as a marriage counselor a lot where one of the spouses feels the other spouse is abusing drugs now usually that's the case they mm-hmm. they are they perceive that correctly but it can also be that um a person, say someone who's sensitized, like maybe somebody who grew up with an alcoholic parent, could perceive, um, you know, more than occasional drug use as a problem or could be hypervigilant toward a spouse around their chemical use because they've had a really bad experience in their life previously. Um, problem use is, is not necessarily, does not necessarily lead to addiction some problem users can um, stop for a while or actually cut back on the amount that they're using and not have it be a problem. But they are probably rarer than um, there are people who, uh, the people who go on to become addicts. Mm-hmm. It's, just, it's just a very slippery slope and very easy. People find themselves suddenly dependent and they didn't even realize how they got there. Okay. So from my understanding, you could be a problem user. More likely, it could lead to addiction. But it could be possible, but it's not as likely. Right. Okay. Interesting. You know, I feel like oftentimes we dis- we like to describe things simplistically. You know, like black or white, good versus bad, or starting or stopping. But I think oftentimes it's so much more complicated than that. Like the huge gray area in between. What do you think is the gray area in addiction or drug abuse? I think that people fail to realize how fierce you have to be to survive in this life. Mm -hmm. And also what that there is, there is a struggle between good and evil going on. In this world, and and I think we come here individually. We choose to come here, to to be part of that struggle ourselves, because it does develop and hone us in ways we wouldn't wouldn't be come honed if we if we had not had that experience. Unfortunately, humans are kind of lazy, and we often don't change unless our backs are really up against the wall, and addiction really puts you up against the wall and forces you to look into your soul in a way that you would not have done otherwise. It can truly be one of the roads to enlightenment. <laughs> and, I mean, in, if there is such a thing, I mean, in, yeah. in, say, in the Buddhist sense. or. Um, so your question again. What's the gray area? The gray area. Okay, so the gray area is that, is that people get too complacent or they get too they get scared in a way where they don't where they're afraid they won't be able to function and so they 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 use drugs it's a quick fix you know it's hoping that it'll just be for a while and you know so if you if you think of life as being that that really all of us are in this struggle between between saying yes to life and saying no to life and how do people get one way or the other i mean sometimes people grow up in families that 
truly don't help them to become adults and they don't make it. And sometimes people um, just don't put enough emphasis on hard, how hard it is to stay positive in the face of so much that's going on in the world. Or upright. Or right. upright. Yeah. I mean, upright in the sense of not just standing and functioning, but also in the sense of, of, of working on your mood and working on your aliveness to keep yourself on the positive side of, of the force, so to speak. It's very easy to slip. Once you start to slip down into despondency or despair or giving up or even having depression can take you into a dark place. And dark places aren't necessarily bad things. They, they test our souls in ways that really fortify us. And I do believe we we usually in life either get better or worse. I love that. You know, like working on our aliveness, as you say. Because mm -hmm. I think sometimes, you know, and a lot of times actually, I think I think life feels like a big maybe. And sometimes that big area of maybe could be or could not is so uncomfortable. It's an anxiety provoking. Sometimes, quite frankly, it's depressing. Mm-hmm. But also in that maybe period, things are also possible and you don't have to succumb to, like you say, the darker forces. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I wonder, you know, seeing people, meeting with friends or even patients, I think that we have an internal struggle too. There's good versus bad outside of us, but within us as well. And sometimes you're, you're stuck and you're mostly stuck in the middle and figuring out which way is better for you. And it can be really confusing. Mm -hmm. But I think it's a huge maybe. Mm -hmm. That's really true. And I, that, I don't think people realize how important it is to be able to stay in a, in a place where you're feeling depressed or confused or um, despondent. And, and just let that be because... I've struggled personally with a lot of depression in my life. And it was when I got to the place where I could just let it be okay to be depressed and still go on with my day. Mm -hmm. First of all, I would often find that that doing my day made me feel better because I got back in touch with that I did have competencies. And secondly, it... Working with it instead of against exactly, it. Exactly. Because I think a lot of times you want to go against it. We want to escape from it. Yeah. Right. But learning to function with it to maybe get us out of the hole that we feel like we're in. Mm -hmm. And then often I've found right at the end, it's like I don't understand why I'm depressed while I'm going through it. But at the end, something comes together, a little pearl, I call it, that, that gives me an awareness or an insight or an understanding of something or someone else's pain that I didn't have before. And so that's the gift I see in the struggle with our darkness. Yeah. I think maybe like we are under the assumption or the misunderstanding that that feeling needs to go away. But what if that feeling that you're feeling, that uncomfortable feeling is for empowerment long-term mm -hmm. instead of taking it away with whatever you path that you choose mm -hmm. to feel it? Yes. To ride it. Do you ever feel like 
there's a period of time that it's going on too long. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I certainly have felt that way myself, and I, I've seen other people who have felt that way, and it's some people can be very courageous just by staying in the world, not harming themselves or anyone else around them, and doing what they can within their limitations. Yeah. That seems like the stronger person. Yes. <laughs> well, the person becomes stronger as a result of doing yeah. that. And they, they learn to respect themselves more over time. Yeah. Because I think the truth about addiction, simplistically speaking, it's a path in which we're harming ourselves. Mm-hmm. It is. Like if we're, let's be honest about it. it yes. Is. No, we're on the dark side. Yeah. We're we're headed we're headed toward the the dark side of the force and that's never good. Yeah, and sometimes that may not have been the initial intention. Not at all. But when you play with stuff like that, it can happen into any of us. Mm-hmm. And some people have a genetic predisposition, but the truth is it can happen to all of us and any of us. Mm-hmm. That's really true. I believe that. If I may ask you, I read that fifty over 50% of those who are incarcerated, it's due to like a drug-related issue. And while people um, may get sober while in prison, that's really not the issue. The issue is learning about staying sober. Mm-hmm. Yes, that's, it's one of the tragedies of our society as I see it today is that most mental, major mental illness like bipolar, schizophrenia, um, are and most drug addiction is treated in prison, not in 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 mental um, on on hospital mental wards or by alcohol and drug treatment centers. And you mean the process of getting sober or the education? Uh, both mm-hmm. actually, people learn from each other. They they learn um, not just negative things. They also learn positive things. It is possible to become rehabilitated in prison if you are very motivated and make use of the few resources that are available to you. Um, Most people don't have the wherewithal. They come in already with the stuffing knocked out of them. So to build that, to build oneself up enough to be able to resist um, using drugs under those terrible circumstances that they're in in prison um, where it's never quiet 24 hours a day. There's someone yelling and screaming. And, Mm -hmm. you know, it's just there's so many ways in which it's it's inhumane. And so to endure that, you almost have to have the stamina of a saint. I mean, you have to you have to be so. Um, rigorously committed to life. It, it reminds me of, I had a friend whose father was in Auschwitz for several years during the Holocaust. I mean, during, you know, when Hitler in, was in Germany. He was Polish. And I asked her, I said, how did your dad stay, you know, keep his wits about him? How did he? How did he not get despairing and and you know just give up? And she said, he knew, in his deepest self, 
that life always changes. And he just kept that thought alive every day. That's pretty amazing. I think that's kind of like believing in something beyond your very self. Mm-hmm. Yes, that we're not we're not alone in the world. I think that's often something mm-hmm. uh, people feel that they they're cut off from other people and other sources of support, and often they're the ones doing the cutting off. Yeah, they're they're too. They can't take the risk or they feel they can't Mm -hmm. to reach out or they don't know who to reach out to that's safe to reach out. Yeah. Or that perhaps the visible truth may not actually be the truth that is. That's also true. Yeah. As I see it. Yeah. I agree. That sometimes you may not be able to see the truth. It's something way beyond us. That's true. And sometimes we may not understand why we were being put through an experience that's truly awful. Mm -hmm. Do you feel like in our prison system that there is enough information and education that's happening for people who get in prison for or incarcerated for drug issues? Well, I I do know of people who Mm -hmm. have um, survived San Quentin and... You know, who are in there as a—I know a man who was in there um, because as a very young man, 19, he he uh, murdered someone, and he was under the influence of drugs. But he managed to, um, in his 30s, um, connect with, with some people who were Christians who would go into the prisons to talk with people. And and through that, that connection, just through developing a faith and— you know, that's what they advise in AA, not necessarily to embrace Christianity, but to develop a higher power, faith in a higher power. I see that even as faith in a higher self, you know, that there's a, our wisest self knows how to say yes to life and knows how to guide us. And sometimes we have to ask for help beyond ourselves and just pray or mm-hmm. uh but I do believe that there are forces in the world that are here to help us. We, there are guides that if we just ask, mm-hmm. we get something back. That life may be beyond our physicality. Yes. And if there's like that energy of the greater good. Yes. Like having faith in that to guide us in our perhaps our loneliest or vul- most vulnerable moments. Right. Sometimes I think the idea of uh, prison or incarceration is kind of interesting because for an addict, you know, for an addict to consider stopping, one has to reach their own rock bottom. But sometimes with prison, it's kind of prison is society's rock bottom. And sometimes our own personal path may not... uh, may not coalesce with society's rock bottom. So... Although, you know, people are in prison, you know, that person may not have reached their rock own rock bottom to make the change. That's true. That's true. It's, it's, uh, people are at different stages of awareness. You know, people mm-hmm. are at different stages of capacity for change. People are, have different levels of flexibility and resilience and... Um, an ability to make use of help and resources as well. 
Yeah, and I really do feel like the resilience card of our humanity, that's the unknown. Mm-hmm. You don't quite understand the power of resilience mm-hmm. until it happens. Mm-hmm. And there's always that possibility card for mm-hmm. all of us. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think as we get better, at least that's what I see in myself and in others I've worked with, is that we actually, that's one of the benefits that that we get is we get more resilient. That means we're able to to not be so reactive, for instance, to be able to stand back and think for a moment before we say something, that we can hold our emotions, even if they're very intense, and not necessarily react or act on them or say something mm-hmm. from that place. We also can use our mind to rise above that, the, the emotions, and come from a different place. And that's what I think people learn in martial arts, too. To go to a higher place? Mm-hmm. Or the higher power, right? Well, yeah, yeah. To, or to, yes, to be able to step aside from their physicality mm-hmm. and their emotional, you know, push-pulls. Then if I may ask you, what do you think is crucial to one's recovery? I think it's, you know, each person's recovery is an individual thing and you have to not, it's not just one thing that you're Mm -hmm. going to find that will keep you sober or help you. It's a number of things. It's the right people. It's, it's the putting yourself in the right circumstances. It's being willing to become humbled and to learn and to recognize you don't have all the answers and that there are parts of you that you need to protect yourself from, not not let them take charge. Or understanding that they're there. Understanding that they're there, right. And so for most people, it's a series of things in the right order. And mm-hmm. sometimes the order changes as our life changes. Or even like understanding, I think, you know, even healthy habits and being educated on that, you know, that stress is real. Mm-hmm. That eating healthy, drinking water when you're thirsty is important. Like mm-hmm. even like the simple things. So true. You know, or or even moving. So true, yes. And I think we fail to teach our children also things that we... It's amazing what teachers as individuals do in public schools. I'm just so impressed with the teachers I know. But given the curriculum they have to deal with, you know, what would happen if we taught our children about about, uh, how to manage their emotions and how to, what it really, how complex relationships are and what it, that there's no human being that's going to be your, your, your soulmate, really. I mean, Mm -hmm. in the sense of, that they're going to just mirror you back to you all the time. <laughs> they're going to have their own needs and their own differences. And and we have to learn how to negotiate. We have to learn how to allow those differences and work with them and not hold on to our own point yeah. of view and be rigid. Being truthful, I think even like the idea of marriage, you know, a lot of people have this view on marriage, even if they come from, you know, what would be considered broken homes, that marriage needs to be this ideal, you know, really pleasant place. But I think marriage is really about working out problems. It really is. <laughs> you know, that's the truth. Mm-hmm. And so there's like fairy tale notion mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. You know, and fairy tales exist when there are no problems and life is about problems. That's right. Yeah. That's right. So we need some new fairy tales, too. Exactly. Fairy tales, too. Not run away. Mm-hmm. To face it. To feel it. Mm-hmm. To work it out together. Mm-hmm. To fight and come to a resolution. Right. To hate each other and get beyond that. And this is why I fight openly in front of our kids. <laughs> <laughs> That's so good. That's but so good. I let them see the fighting part, but I want them to hear the resolution part too. Mm-hmm. You know, that even when things seem good, it's not a fairy tale. Mm-hmm. You know, there's crap to work out and feel and be angry. Mm-hmm. Although I haven't thrown anything, but... <laughs> mm-hmm. Yes, and I, and I think when, when you can do that, rather than be afraid that... You know, you'll, you'll, the children won't understand or they'll be wounded in a way that will affect them later. Or, I mean, I'm not talking about, you know, there, there's, there are levels of violence that children should not be exposed to. Yeah. But, you know, certainly you can have a lot of conflict in a relationship that they are exposed to. And it can still be... Um, something that over time gets worked through and they mm-hmm. see that that happens and it gives them hope for themselves yeah. too. The escalation and the de-escalation. Mm-hmm. And having rules for yourself about yeah. that. Yeah. Do you think, you know, in terms of addiction, self-will alone works? I'm not sure what self-will is. <laughs> <laughs> Let's say if you feel like you can do it, that you'll just do it. Or is it more of a complicated process? Well, what I've seen in uh, about in what I've read is that in terms of relapse, that about eighty about twenty percent of people who get sober stay sober and never drink again. Mm -hmm. And usually, those are people who've had some very bad experience as a result of, you know, a drunk driving where someone was hurt seriously or killed, or you know, something where they really violated their values as a result of having um, been on alcohol or drugs and doing something that they would not have done that violated their own values. Those people are the kind of people who are more likely to just quit mm-hmm. and never touch it again. 80% of people relapse, which means they go back and forth. And in some ways that's, you know, it, it, they're both struggles, but it may be harder to relapse and have to get back on track. There's shame involved in not living up to your own better self. And again, the self-harm and the self-abuse. That's there as well. Do you feel like, you know, people who know that they have addiction issues, do you feel like it is possible to drink or dabble in drugs or is or is it impossible? Well, I have seen people who were, say, addicted to opiates be able to use alcohol moderately. Mm-hmm. Uh, if the Generally, with a drug that's in the same class as the one that you were addicted to, like stimulants, opiates, alcohol, or marijuana, if you've truly been addicted to one of those, you should probably avoid using it at all. Yeah. 
Knowing your weaknesses. Knowing your weaknesses, exactly. Yeah. How important is spirit to one's recovery? Spirit being? I guess faith or hope or, like you mentioned before, your higher self. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that's that's what people eventually come to um, realize is the most important thing that they have to focus on, developing their higher selves, developing their capacity for faith or for hope or for, um, they don't have to believe in a specific God, mm-hmm. but believing that there's a higher purpose to life and that we can, um, that our, our job here on the planet is to, is to grow ourselves into better beings. Then we came here. It's kind of like the Boy Scout theme. You know, leave your campsite better than you found it. I like the way you describe it because I think sometimes when we're born, we see ourselves as just a certain way, maybe like a little bit of a bubble. But I think sometimes when you're dealing with something really difficult and your own little bubble can't can't address that or or can't overcome that just by yourself to grow yourself or grow your bubble, expand. Mm-hmm. So that you become more powerful, I think, in a better way mm-hmm. to handle the situation and perhaps overcome the situation. Yes. And you become healthier, too. And so you can think more clearly and your body is stronger and you, you can rely on yourself more. You're, you're more consistent. And so that reinforces mm-hmm. doing the things that, that keep you that way. Yeah. And then maybe instead of like feeding the monster that's within all of us, mm-hmm. feeding your greater good. Right. And I don't think it's just one way. It could be, you know, it could be feeling great spiritually, but also knowing what healthy really is. Right. And that you know, we're not connections. always healthy. Yeah. You know, that we have to go, we have to tolerate times where we, where we feel we've lost our yeah. way. Maybe feeling okay in the maybe phases <laughs> yes. of our lives. At least being able to hold on to the maybe. Yeah. You know? I don't feel where, where I'm not where I want to be right now, but I am willing to walk through this and see what I can learn from it, keep my eyes open, stay aware. I love that. I think one of the empowering things about even AA is feeling connected to people, too. That's what it seems like. Even though you're not supposed to talk when someone else speaks, I believe, hearing someone's story, that there's similarities in that, that you're struggling, you're you're not alone in your struggle. Mm -hmm. That's so important. There could be a different version, but you're not alone, Mm -hmm. that we're human, and sometimes our humanity, you know, the not so pleasant is also encompassing our humanity too. That's true. That's that's very very important to understand that yeah. we do come here to walk through the darkness too, and it's not doesn't mean there's something wrong with you. It means you're on the path. That this is our path called life. <laughs> this is this is our path called life. Yes, and and this is not. The, I don't think this assignment on Earth is a particularly easy mm-hmm. one. No, I don't think so. This is we you know we're really called upon to be to be very um we have to be very fierce. Mhm. Or sometimes we overcomplicate it with things that we've done. Mhm. 
Yeah. And, and try to keep it simple. I mean, there's a, just a few things in AA that I, you know, I've gone back to over and over again, um, which which have to do with things you can do, or or just little sayings that are helpful, um, like keep it simple, first things first, and a day at a time. I mean, I I see keep it simple is don't complicate your life. Bring it back to what is essential, what's really important to you in the moment. First things first is that it is to ask yourself, is this today's problem? And if it's not, when will I think about it? I'll think about it next Thursday and let let it go because usually we only have one or two problems a day that we really have to mm-hmm. solve. Rarely, often we don't have any that we have to absolutely do today. Um, and a day at a time is is to say stay close to the moment so that we're not future. A lot of people, you know, either are future tripping, I've, I should do this or I've got to do this or I want to do this or this is my plan and, and if I don't get it, I'll, I'll be upset with myself. Or they're regretting something about the past. Exactly. There's a lot of planes today. <laughs> there are. <laughs> they, they finally let them go and they're going. Or one of the, uh, I'm not sure how to call it, or one of the isms that I loved is, you've reached your rock bottom when you stop digging. That's you know very powerful. It's our process. Mm-hmm. I thought it was also really interesting, you know, addiction is a brain disease. And with drugs and alcohol, it chronically changes the neurocircuitry of our brains. Yes. And I feel like, you know, reading up on addiction, I I feel like addiction should be treated as a chronic illness. And I think oftentimes it's not. Yes. I think doctors don't know how to address addiction. And they, a lot of us think that, you know, oh, if there's history of abuse, okay, it's done. But it's a chronic illness that we're dealing with. Mm-hmm. Yes. Like just because one stops substance doesn't mean that there the chronic changes in the brain have not occurred. That's true. How to assess those is something else. Yeah. I don't think we know that yet. No. But I think you know just because I mean I love I, I think it, what's true in medicine is that we love billing codes. Mm-hmm. A diagnosis mm-hmm. and hopefully reaching a resolution on the diagnosis. But mm. this is a diagnosis that may not have a resolution. This it's is a chronic disease. Yes. Yeah. And once you get an addict, you have it for life. And the challenge is to manage it. Exactly. I feel like our recovery is a daily maintenance mm-hmm. and it's being true. aware of that. And I think many people in medicine are not. Yes, I think that's true, too. And and they're called upon to be so many things to so many people that I guess I have a lot of compassion for people who choose medicine as a career. Yeah, I think I think there is an internal struggle as well, right? Mm-hmm. You go into the field for a particular reason, but are you really practicing what you intentionally went into the field for? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But that's why I wonder if the human struggle is really universal. Mm-hmm. Don't you think yeah. it is? I would just wish we looked less okay on the outside. 
Oh yes, but that's <laughs> that's our society. See, that's the values of of when I say globalization, I mean the exporting of Western values to the rest of the world. I was fortunate enough to to be born in 1945. And so I got to travel in the 60s and 70s when the world was still very different in other places. There were still other traditional cultures that were fully intact. And I wanted, I wanted the Peace Corps people to go home screaming, we have nothing to offer you. <laughs> you know, you have so much to offer us. And, in, you know, we, we didn't do the world a favor, I don't believe, by exporting Western values because... One of them, as you say, is looking good on the outside, and that is um, that really gets in the way of doing the real work that we come here to do. It's true. It's like the way we view these heroes of modern day culture, like the actress or the social influencer. You know, they look really good on the outside, mm -hmm. but the lack of privacy, having all that money may not actually lead to happiness. I think the old saying, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolute, absolutely is probably correct. Yeah. I, I think it's a, it's a drug and it's something to stay, uh, you know, I mean, to realize that... Um, that it's not a good road to go down. That's not the road you should base your life mm -hmm. on because it won't take you where you need to go. I think it's just kind of one of those confusing things for us to be aware of, but it's just meant to be confusing but not a path to follow. <laughs> yes. Yes, I agree. You know, but in order to not to be, in order to not be confused, I think we really have to understand ourselves. Mm -hmm. know our limitations. Limitations are so important and they're so limitations are a four-letter word in in our culture also. And I think they're the key to to self um to, to self-acceptance and and to tr you, you can't really start to grow yourself authentically until you know what your limitations are. What are you mm -hmm. working with? What what is this thing? What you know, what is my being, my physiology, my strengths, my high intelligences, my low intelligences, um, so that I, so that I shape my life with those, taking those into consideration. Yeah. Or even like the lack of prevention, right? Mm -hmm. For those who have not started, mm -hmm. like, why aren't we preventing it more? Like, why get to the point and I feel like it's same thing with medicine or medical care. There is minimal prevention. Mm -hmm. Why get to the point where the gun is against your head? Mm -hmm. That's right. You know, why not think about do you really want to go there or not or understanding how your body reacts? Mm -hmm. And maybe like a love of a substance, you know, even if it makes you feel better at that moment is not the cure if it overall hurts you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, and, and often people find a substitute that isn't so destructive. I mean, I, I was a nicotine addict for about 15 years. It was very difficult to get off. Mm -hmm. I mean, I really sincerely wanted to get off, and it took me about four years of, of, of relapsing 
you know, staying off and then get, get you know, say, I can have one, and <laughs> then I'm back to where my tolerance was. But what I found is as soon as I stopped smoking, I felt I really needed to sing. And so I found a choir and I started singing, and I've been singing ever since. And it truly is um, not only uplifts my soul, but also it seems to feed whatever that need was that the nicotine fed. Interesting. And does it? Does it give you what nicotine gave you? It, it gives me more. <laughs> how did you treat yourself when you would relapse on cigarettes? Um, you mean how, how did I attempt to get off them? Or no, how, you know, I would imagine like when one relapses, it's a huge sense of disappointment mm -hmm. too. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I would wonder if the self-abuse was higher. How did you treat yourself? When? Yeah, at that point, I had already started working with alcoholics. And, and I was learning, for, a lot of them do, did smoke in those days, even in AA meetings. And mm -hmm. fortunately, that's gone away. Um, but I was learning from them. And I, I applied the philosophy of the 12 steps to my own process and learned how to you know, easy does it. I mean, how to to uh, to just get on the you know horse and and try again. I think that's beautiful. I think the twelve steps is really powerful too. Mm -hmm. It is. It is, and a lot of times people don't know how to make use of the program, or the people they encounter don't meet their expectations, so they they don't uh, give it a chance. Which, but if you can connect with it in a way that, that it's helpful to you. It's really a, 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 an amazing, it's, it's a unique adjunct to helping in recovery. Mm -hmm. You know, in preparation for the interview, I was listening to some videos and Peter Santoro, um, I heard him speak and he, so he used to be the vice president of the Lower East Side Service Center. And he was saying that every time someone relapses, that person is one step closer to getting sober or dying. How do you feel about that? I think he's right on. It's a life and death struggle. If someone who's struggling right now, what would you say to them? Oh. Keep, never give up. There is always a solution. You just haven't found it yet. I love that. And sometimes ask for help. <laughs> And yes, and as, as when you can do that, when you and when you find someone who can help you, yeah. be discriminating. Wonderful! Thank you so much mm -hmm. for being here. What a beautiful interview! Thank you. Well, thank you. I really enjoyed talking with you. It's been delightful. See you next time on another edition of Lost or Found. Please subscribe. And follow Dr. Michelle Choi on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube. Are you looking for a unique perspective to help you gain insight into your health and well-being? Schedule a virtual wellness visit with Dr. Michelle Choi by going to our website, drlostorfound.com.